0: Chapters 4 and 5 of Notes on the Book of Genesis by Charles Henry Mackintosh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chapters 4 and 5 As each section of the Book of Genesis opens before us, we are furnished with fresh evidence of the fact that we are travelling over what a recent writer has well termed the seed plot of the whole Bible, and not only so. But the seed-plot of man's entire history thus in the fourth chapter we have in the persons of cain and abel the first examples of a religious man of the world and of a genuine man of faith born as they were outside of eden and being the sons of fallen adam they could have nothing natural to distinguish them one from the other they were both sinners both had a fallen nature neither was innocent it is well to be clear in reference to this in order that the reality of divine grace and the integrity of faith may be fully and distinctly seen if the distinction between cain and abel were founded in nature then it follows as an inevitable conclusion that they were not the partakers of the fallen nature of their father nor the participators in the circumstances of his fall and hence there could be no room for the display of grace and the exercise of faith some would teach us that every man is born with qualities and capacities which if rightly used will enable him to work his way back to god this is a plain denial of the fact so clearly set forth in the history now before us cain and abel were born not inside but outside of paradise they were the sons not of innocent but of fallen adam they came into the world as the partakers of the nature of their father and it mattered not in what phase that nature might display itself it was nature still fallen ruined irredeemable nature that which is born of the flesh is not merely fleshly but flesh and that which is born of the spirit is not merely spiritual, but spirit. John 3. If ever there was a fair opportunity for the distinctive qualities, capacities, resources, and tendencies of nature to manifest themselves, the lifetime of Cain and Abel furnished it. If there were aught in nature whereby it could recover its lost innocence and establish itself again within the bounds of Eden, this was the moment for its display. But there was nothing of the kind. They were both lost. They were flesh. They were not innocent. Adam lost his innocence and never regained it. He could only be looked at as the fallen head of a fallen race who, by his disobedience, were made sinners. Romans 5.19. He became, so far as he was personally concerned, the corrupt source from whence have emanated the corrupt streams of ruined and guilty humanity the dead trunk from which have shot forth the branches of a dead humanity morally and spiritually dead true as we have already remarked he himself was made a subject of grace and the possessor and exhibitor of a lively faith in a promised saviour but this was not anything natural but something entirely divine and inasmuch as it was not natural neither was it within the range of nature's capacity to communicate it it was not by any means hereditary adam could not bequeath nor impart his faith to cain or abel his possession thereof was simply the fruit of love divine it was implanted in his soul by divine power and he had not divine power to communicate it to another whatever was natural adam could in the way of nature communicate but nothing more and seeing that he as a father was in a condition of ruin his son could only be in the same. As is the begetter, so are they also that are begotten of him. They must of necessity partake of the nature of him from whom they have sprung. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy." 1 Corinthians 15.48 Nothing can be more important in its way than a correct understanding of the doctrine of federal headship. IF MY READER WILL TURN FOR A MOMENT TO ROMANS five twelve to 21 HE WILL FIND THAT THE INSPIRED APOSTLE LOOKS AT THE WHOLE HUMAN RACE AS COMPREHENDED UNDER TWO HEADS. I DO NOT ATTEMPT TO DWELL ON THE PASSAGE, BUT MERELY REFER TO IT, IN CONNECTION WITH THE SUBJECT IN HAND. THE FIFTEENTH CHAPTER OF First CORINTHIANS WILL ALSO FURNISH INSTRUCTION OF A SIMILAR CHARACTER. IN THE FIRST MAN WE HAVE SIN, DISOBEDIENCE, AND DEATH. In the second man we have righteousness, obedience, and life. As we derive a nature from the former, so do we also from the latter. No doubt each nature will display, in each specific case, its own peculiar energies. It will manifest, in each individual professor thereof, its own peculiar powers. Still there is the absolute possession of a real, abstract, positive nature. Now as the mode in which we derive a nature from the first man is by birth, so the mode in which we derive a nature from the second man is by new birth. Being born, we partake of the nature of the former. Being born again, we partake of the nature of the latter. A newly born infant, though entirely incapable of performing the act which reduced Adam to the condition of a fallen being, is nevertheless a partaker of his nature. And so also a newly born child of God, a newly regenerated soul, though having nothing whatever to do with the working out of the perfect obedience of the man Christ Jesus, is nevertheless a partaker of his nature. True it is that attached to the former nature there is sin, and attached to the latter there is righteousness, man's sin in the former case, God's righteousness in the latter, yet All the while, there is the actual bona fide participation of a real nature. Let the adjuncts be what they may. The child of Adam partakes of the human nature and its adjuncts. The child of God partakes of the divine nature and its adjuncts. The former nature is according to the will of man, John 1. The latter is according to the will of God, as St. James by the Holy Ghost teaches us, of his own will begat he us by the word of truth james one eighteen. from all that has been said it follows that abel was not distinguished from his brother cain by any natural thing the distinction between them was not grounded upon aught in their nature or circumstances for as to these there was no difference what therefore made the vast difference the answer is as simple as the gospel of the grace of god can make it the difference was not in themselves in their nature or their circumstances it lay entirely in their sacrifices this makes the matter most simple for any truly convicted sinner for any one who truly feels that he not only partakes of a fallen nature but is himself also a sinner the history of abel opens to such an one the only true ground of his approach to his standing before and his relationship with god it teaches him distinctly that he cannot come to god on the ground of anything in of or pertaining to nature and he must seek outside himself and in the person and work of another the true and everlasting basis of his connection with the holy the just and only true god the eleventh chapter of hebrews sets the whole subject before us in the most distinct and comprehensive way by faith abel offered unto god a more excellent sacrifice than cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous god bearing witness to his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaketh here we are taught that it was in no wise a question as to the men but only as to their sacrifice it was not a question as to the offerer but as to his offering here lay the grand distinction between cain and abel My reader cannot be too simple in his apprehension of this point, for therein lies involved the truth as to any sinners standing before God. And now let us inquire what the offerings were. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto Jehovah, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof and the lord had respect unto abel and to his offering but unto cain and to his offering he had not respect genesis four three to five this passage sets the difference clearly before us cain offered to jehovah the fruit of a cursed earth and that moreover without any blood to remove the curse he presented an unbloody sacrifice simply because he had no faith had he possessed that divine principle it would have taught him even at this early moment that without shedding of blood there is no remission hebrews nine this is a great cardinal truth the penalty of sin is death cain was a sinner and as such death stood between him and jehovah but in his offering there was no recognition whatever of this fact there was no presentation of a sacrificed life to meet the claims of divine holiness or to answer to his own true condition as a sinner. He treated Jehovah as though he were altogether such an one as himself, who could accept the sin-stained fruit of a cursed earth. All this, and much more, lay involved in Cain's unbloody sacrifice. He displayed entire ignorance in reference to divine requirements, in reference to his own character and condition as a lost and guilty sinner, and in reference to the true state of that ground the fruit of which he presumed to offer no doubt reason might say what more acceptable offering could a man present than that which he had produced by the labor of his hands and the sweat of his brow reason and every man's religious mind may think thus that god thinks quite differently and faith is always sure to agree with god's thoughts God teaches, and faith believes, that there must be a sacrificed life, else there can be no approach to God. Thus, when we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus, we see at once that, had He not died upon the cross, all His services would have proved utterly unavailing as regards the establishment of our relationship with God. True, He went about doing good all His life, but it was His death that rent the veil matthew 27 51 nought but his death could have done so had he continued to the present moment going about doing good the veil would have remained entire to bar the worshippers approach into the holiest of all hence we can see the false ground on which cain stood as an offerer and a worshipper an unpardoned sinner coming into the presence of jehovah to present an unbloody sacrifice could only be regarded as guilty of the highest degree of presumption. True he had toiled to produce this offering, but what of that? Could a sinner's toil remove the curse and stain of sin? Could it satisfy the claims of an infinitely holy God? Could it furnish a proper ground of acceptance for a sinner? Could it set aside the penalty which was due to sin? Could it rob death of its sting, or the grave of its victory? Could it do any or all of these things? Impossible. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Cain's unbloody sacrifice, like every other unbloody sacrifice, was not only worthless, but actually abominable in the divine estimation. It not only demonstrated his entire ignorance of his own condition, but also of the divine character. God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. And yet cain thought he could be thus approached and every mere religionist thinks the same cain has had many millions of followers from age to age cain worship has abounded all over the world it is the worship of every unconverted soul and is maintained by every false system of religion under the sun man would fain make god a receiver instead of a giver but this cannot be for it is more blessed to give than to receive and assuredly god must have the more blessed place without all contradiction the less is blessed of the better who hath first given to him god can accept the smallest gift from a heart which has learned the deep truth contained in those words of thine own have we given thee but the moment a man presumes to take the place of the first giver god's reply is if i were hungry i would not tell thee for he is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things the great giver of all things cannot possibly need anything praise is all that we can offer to god but this can only be offered in the full and clear intelligence that our sins are all put away and this again can only be known by faith in the virtue of an accomplished atonement my readers may pause here and read prayerfully the following scriptures, namely psalm one isaiah one eleven to eighteen and acts seventeen twenty two to thirty four in all of which he will find distinctly laid down the truth as to man's true position before God as also the proper ground of worship. Let us now consider Abel's sacrifice. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. In other words, he entered by faith into the glorious truth that God could be approached by sacrifice, that there was such a thing as a sinner's placing the death of another between himself and the consequence of his sin, that the claims of God's nature and the attributes of his character could be met by the blood of a spotless victim, a victim offered to meet God's demands and the sinner's deep necessities. This is in short the doctrine of the cross in which alone the conscience of a sinner can find repose because therein God is fully glorified. Every divinely convicted sinner must feel that death and judgment are before him as the due reward of his deeds nor can he by aught that he can accomplish alter that destiny. He may toil and labour he may by the sweat of his brow produce an offering he may make vows and resolutions he may alter his way of life he may reform his outward character he may be temperate moral upright and in the human acceptation of the word religious he may though entirely destitute of faith read pray and hear sermons in short he may do anything or everything which lies within the range of human competency but notwithstanding all death and judgment are before him he has not been able to disperse those two heavy clouds which have gathered upon the horizon there they stand and so far from being able to remove them by all his doings he can only live in the gloomy anticipation of the moment when they shall burst upon his guilty head it is impossible for a sinner by his own works to place himself in life and triumph at the other side of death and judgment yea his very works are only performed for the purpose of preparing him if possible for those dreaded realities here however is exactly where the cross comes in in that cross the convicted sinner can behold a divine provision for all his guilt and all his need There, too, he can see death and judgment entirely removed from the scene, and life and glory set in their stead. Christ has cleared the prospect of death and judgment, so far as the true believer is concerned, and filled it with life, righteousness, and glory. He hath abolished death, and brought life and incorruptibility to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 He has glorified God in the putting away of that which would have separated us for ever from His holy and blissful presence. He has put away sin, and hence it is gone. Hebrews 9.26 All this is in type set forth in Abel's more excellent sacrifice. There was no attempt on Abel's part to set aside the truth as to his own condition and proper place as a guilty sinner no attempt to turn aside the edge of the flaming sword and force his way back to the tree of life no presumptuous offering of an unbloody sacrifice no presentation of the fruit of a cursed earth to jehovah he took the real ground of a sinner and as such set the death of a victim between him and his sins and between his sins and the holiness of a sin hating god this was most simple abel deserved death and judgment but he found a substitute thus it is with every poor helpless self-condemned conscience-smitten sinner christ is his substitute his ransom his most excellent sacrifice his all such an one will feel like abel that the fruit of the ground could never avail for him that were he to present to god the fairest fruits of earth he would still have a sin-stained conscience inasmuch as, without shedding of blood, is no remission. The richest fruits, and the most fragrant flowers, in greatest profusion, could not remove a single stain from the conscience. Nothing but the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God can give ease to the heart and conscience. All who by faith lay hold of that divine reality will enjoy a peace which the world can neither give nor take away. It is faith which puts the soul in present possession of this peace being justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ romans 5 1 by faith abel offered unto god a more excellent sacrifice than cain it is not a question of feeling as so many would make it it is entirely a question of faith in an accomplished fact faith wrought in the soul of a sinner by the power of the holy ghost this faith is something quite different from a mere feeling of the heart or an assent of the intellect. Feeling is not faith. Intellectual assent is not faith. Some would make faith to be the mere assent of the intellect to a certain proposition. This is fearfully false. It makes the question of faith human, whereas it is really divine. It reduces it to the level of man, whereas it really comes from God. Faith is not a thing of today or tomorrow, it is an imperishable principle emanating from an eternal source, even God himself. It lays hold of God's truth and sets the soul in God's presence. Mere feeling and sentimentality can never rise above the source from whence they emanate, and that source is self. But faith has to do with God and his eternal word and is a living link connecting the heart that possesses it with god who gives it human feelings however intense human sentiments however refined could not connect the soul with god they are neither divine nor eternal but are human and evanescent they are like jonah's gourd which sprang up in a night and perished in a night not so faith that precious principle partakes of all the value all the power and all the reality of the source from which it emanates, and the object with which it has to do. It justifies the soul, Romans 5.1. It purifies the heart, Acts 15.9. It works by love, Galatians 5.6. It overcomes the world, 1 John 5.4. Feeling and sentiment never could accomplish such results. They belong to nature and to earth. Faith belongs to God and to heaven. They are occupied with self. Faith is occupied with Christ. They look inward and downward. Faith looks outward and upward. They leave the soul in darkness and doubt. Faith leads it into light and peace. They have to do with one's own fluctuating condition. Faith has to do with God's immutable truth and Christ's eternally enduring sacrifice. No doubt faith will produce feelings and sentiments spiritual feelings and truthful sentiments but the fruits of faith must never be confounded with faith itself i am not justified by feelings nor yet by faith and feelings but simply by faith and why because faith believes god when he speaks it takes him at his word it apprehends him as he has revealed himself in the person and work of the lord jesus christ this is life righteousness and peace to apprehend god as he is is the sum of all present and eternal blessedness when the soul finds out god it has found out all it can possibly need here or hereafter but he can only be known by his own revelation and by the faith which he himself imparts and which moreover always seeks divine revelation as its proper object thus then we can in some measure enter into the meaning and power of the statement By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain had no faith, and therefore he offered an unbloody sacrifice. Abel had faith, and therefore he offered both blood and fat, which, in type, set forth the presentation of the life, and also the inherent excellency of the person of Christ. The blood set forth the former, the fat shadowed forth the latter. Both blood and fat were forbidden to be eaten under the Mosaic economy. The blood is the life, and man under law had no title to life. But in the 6th of John we are taught that unless we eat blood, we can have no life in us. Christ is the life. There is not a spark of life outside of him. All out of Christ is death. In him was life, and in none else now he gave up his life on the cross and to that life sin was by imputation attached when the blessed one was nailed to the accursed tree hence in giving up his life he gave up also the sin attached thereto so that it is effectually put away having been left in his grave from which he rose triumphant in the power of a new life to which righteousness as distinctly attaches itself as sin did to that life which he gave up on the cross. This will help us to an understanding of an expression used by our blessed Lord after his resurrection, A spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. He did not say flesh and blood, because in resurrection he had not assumed into his sacred person the blood which he had shed out upon the cross as an atonement for sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood which maketh an atonement for the soul. Leviticus 17.11 Close attention to this point will have the effect of deepening in our souls the sense of the completeness of the putting away of sin by the death of Christ. AND WE KNOW THAT WHATEVER TENDS TO DEEPEN OUR SENSE OF THAT GLORIOUS REALITY MUST NECESSARILY TEND TO THE FULLER ESTABLISHMENT OF OUR PEACE AND TO THE MORE EFFECTUAL PROMOTION OF THE GLORY OF CHRIST AS CONNECTED WITH OUR TESTIMONY AND SERVICE. WE HAVE ALREADY REFERRED TO A POINT OF MUCH INTEREST AND VALUE IN THE HISTORY OF CAIN AND ABEL, AND THAT IS THE ENTIRE IDENTIFICATION OF EACH WITH THE OFFERING WHICH HE PRESENTED my reader cannot possibly bestow too much attention upon this the question in each case was not as to the person of the offerer but entirely as to the character of his offering hence of abel we read that god testified of his gifts he did not bear witness to abel but to abel's sacrifice and this fixes distinctly the proper ground of a believer's peace and acceptance before god There is a constant tendency in the heart to ground our peace and acceptance upon something in or about ourselves, even though we admit that something is wrought by the Holy Ghost. Hence arises the constant looking in, when the Holy Ghost would ever have us looking out. The question for every believer is not, what am I, but what is Christ? Having come to God in the name of Jesus, he is wholly identified with Him and accepted in his name, and, moreover, can no more be rejected than the one in whose name he has come. Before ever a question can be raised as to the feeblest believer, it must be raised as to Christ himself. But this latter is clearly impossible, and thus the security of the believer is established upon a foundation which nothing can possibly move. Being in himself a poor, worthless sinner, he has come in the name of Christ, He is identified with Christ, accepted in and as Christ, bound up in the same bundle of life with Christ. God testifies not of him but of his gift, and his gift is Christ. All this is most tranquilizing and consolatory. It is our happy privilege to be able in the confidence of faith to refer every objection and every objector to Christ and his finished atonement. All our springs are in him. In him we boast all the day long. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in him who hath wrought everything for us. We hang on his name, trust in his work, gaze on his person, and wait for his coming. But the carnal mind at once displays its enmity against all this truth which so gladdens and satisfies the heart of a believer. Thus it was with Cain. HE WAS VERY WROTH, AND HIS COUNTENANCE FELL. THAT WHICH FILLED ABEL WITH PEACE FILLED CAIN WITH wrath. CAIN IN UNBELIEF DESPISED THE ONLY WAY IN WHICH A SINNER COULD COME TO GOD. HE REFUSED TO OFFER BLOOD WITHOUT WHICH THERE CAN BE NO REMISSION, AND THEN, BECAUSE HE WAS NOT RECEIVED, IN HIS SINS, AND BECAUSE ABEL WAS ACCEPTED IN HIS GIFT, HE WAS WROTH, AND HIS COUNTENANCE FELL. And yet how else could it be he should either be received with his sins or without them but god could not receive him with them and he would not bring the blood which alone maketh atonement and therefore he was rejected and being rejected he manifests in his ways the fruits of corrupt religion he persecutes and murders the true witness the accepted justified man the man of faith and in so doing HE STANDS AS THE MODEL AND FORERUNNER OF ALL FALSE RELIGIONISTS IN EVERY AGE. AT ALL TIMES AND in ALL PLACES MEN HAVE SHOWN THEMSELVES MORE READY TO PERSECUTE ON RELIGIOUS GROUNDS THAN ON ANY OTHER. THIS IS CAIN-LIKE. JUSTIFICATION, FULL, PERFECT, UNQUALIFIED JUSTIFICATION, BY FAITH ONLY, MAKES GOD EVERYTHING AND MAN NOTHING. AND MAN DOES NOT LIKE THIS. IT CAUSES HIS countenance TO FALL AND DRAWS OUT HIS ANGER not that he can give any reason for his anger for it is not as we have seen a question of man at all but only of the ground on which he appears before god had abel been accepted on the ground of aught in himself then indeed cain's wrath and his fallen countenance would have had some justification but inasmuch as he was accepted exclusively on the ground of his offering and inasmuch as it was not to him but to his gift that jehovah bore testimony his wrath was entirely without any proper basis this is brought out in jehovah's word to cain if thou doest well or as the septuagint reads it if thou offer correctly shalt thou not be accepted the well-doing had reference to the offering abel did well by hiding himself behind an acceptable sacrifice cain did badly by bringing an offering without blood and all his after conduct was but the legitimate result of his false worship and cain talked with abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that cain rose up against abel his brother and slew him thus it has ever been the Cains have persecuted and murdered the abels at all times man and his religion are the same faith and its religion are the same and wherever they have met there has been conflict however it is well to see that cain's act of murder was the true consequence the proper fruit of his false worship his foundation was bad and the superstructure erected thereon was also bad nor did he stop at the act of murder but having heard the judgment of god thereon despairing of forgiveness through ignorance of god he went forth from his blessed presence and built a city and had in his family the cultivators of the useful and ornamental sciences agriculturalists musicians and workers in metals through ignorance of the divine character he pronounced his sin too great to be pardoned it was not that he really knew his sin but that he knew not god he fully exhibited the terrible fruit of the fall in the very thought of god to which he gave utterance he did not want pardon because he did not want god He had no true sense of his own condition, no aspirations after God, no intelligence as to the ground of a sinner's approach to God. He was radically corrupt, fundamentally wrong, and all he wanted was to get out of the presence of God and lose himself in the world and its pursuits. He thought that he could live very well without God, and he therefore set about decorating the world as well as he could for the purpose of making it a respectable place, and himself a respectable man therein, though in God's view it was under the curse, and he was a fugitive and a vagabond. Such was the way of Cain, in which way millions are at this moment rushing on. Such persons are not by any means divested of the religious element in their character. They would like to offer something to God, to do something for him. They deem it right to present to him the results of their own toil. They are ignorant of themselves, ignorant of God, but with all this, there is the diligent effort to improve the world, to make life agreeable in various ways, to deck the scene with the fairest colours. God's remedy to cleanse is rejected, and man's effort to improve is put in its place. This is the way of Cain. Jude 11. And, my reader, you have only to look around you to see how this way prevails at the present moment though the world is stained with the blood of a greater than abel even with the blood of christ yet see what an agreeable place man seeks to make of it as in cain's day the grateful sounds of the harp and organ no doubt completely drowned to man's ear the cry of abel's blood so now man's ear is filled with other sounds than those which issue from calvary and his eye filled with other objects than a crucified christ the resources of his genius too are put forth to render this world a hot-house in which are produced in their rarest form all of the fruits for which nature so eagerly longs and not merely are the real wants of man as a creature supplied but the inventive genius of the human mind has been set to work for the purpose of devising things which the moment the eye sees the heart desires and not only desires but imagines that life would be intolerable without them thus for instance some years ago people were content to devote three or four days to the accomplishing of a journey of one hundred miles but now they can accomplish it in three or four hours and not only so, but they will complain sadly if they happen to be five or ten minutes late. In fact, man must be saved the trouble of living. He must travel without fatigue, and he must hear news without having to exercise patience for it. He will lay iron rails across the earth and electric wires beneath the sea, as if to anticipate in his own way that bright and blissful age when there shall be no more sea in addition to all this there is an abundance of religion so called but alas charity itself is compelled to harbour the apprehension that very much of what passes for religion is but a screw in the vast machine which has been constructed for man's convenience and man's exaltation man would not be without religion it would not be respectable and therefore he is content to devote one-seventh of his time to religion or as he thinks and professes to his eternal interests and then he has six-sevenths to devote to his temporal interests but whether he works for time or eternity it is for himself in reality such is the way of cain let my reader ponder it well let him see where this way begins whither it tends, and where it terminates how different the way of the man of faith abel felt and owned the curse he saw the stain of sin and in the holy energy of faith offered that which met it and met it thoroughly met it divinely he sought and found a refuge in god himself and instead of building a city on the earth he found but a grave in its bosom the earth which on its surface displayed the genius and energy of cain and his family was stained underneath with the blood of a righteous man let the man of the world remember this let the man of god remember it let the worldly minded christian remember it the earth which we tread upon is stained by the blood of the son of god the very blood which justifies the church condemns the world the dark shadow of the cross of jesus may be seen by the eye of faith looming over all the glitter and glare of this evanescent world the fashion of this world passeth away. It will soon all be over, so far as the present scene is concerned. The way of Cain will be followed by the error of Balaam in its consummated form, and then will come the gainsaying of Korah. And what then? The pit will open its mouth to receive the wicked, and close it again to shut them up in blackness of darkness for ever. Jude 13. In full confirmation of the foregoing lines, we may run the eye over the contents of chapter 5 and find therein the humiliating record of man's weakness and subjection to the rule of death. He might live for hundreds of years and beget sons and daughters, but at last it must be recorded that he died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, and again, it is appointed unto men once to die man cannot get over this he cannot by steam or electricity or anything else within the range of his genius disarm death of its terrible sting he cannot by his energy set aside the sentence of death although he may produce the comforts and luxuries of life but whence came this strange and dreaded thing death saint paul gives us the answer by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin romans five twelve here we have the origin of death it came by sin sin snapped asunder the link which bound the creature to the living god and that being done he was handed over to the dominion of death which dominion he had no power whatever to shake off and this be it observed is one of the many proofs of the fact of man's total inability to meet god there can be no fellowship between god and man save in the power of life but man is under the power of death hence on natural grounds there can be no fellowship life can have no fellowship with death no more than light with darkness or holiness with sin man must meet god on an entirely new ground and on a new principle even faith And this faith enables him to recognize his own position as sold under sin and therefore subject to death, while at the same time it enables him to apprehend God's character as the dispenser of a new life, life beyond the power of death, a life which can never be touched by the enemy, nor forfeited by us. This it is which marks the security of a believer's life. Christ is his life a risen glorified christ a christ victorious over everything that could be against us adam's life was founded upon his own obedience and therefore when he disobeyed life was forfeited but christ having life in himself came down into this world and fully met all the circumstances of man's sin in every possible form and by submitting to death destroyed him who had the power thereof and in resurrection becomes the life and righteousness of all who believe in his most excellent name now it is impossible that satan can touch this life either in its source its channel its power its sphere or its duration god is its source arisen christ its channel the holy ghost its power heaven its sphere and eternity its duration hence therefore as might be expected To one possessing this wondrous life, the whole scene is changed. And while in one sense it must be said, In the midst of life we are in death, yet in another sense it can be said, In the midst of death we are in life. There is no death in the sphere into which a risen Christ introduces his people. How could there be? Has not he abolished it? It cannot be abolished, and an existing thing at the same time, and to the same people but god's word tells us it is abolished christ emptied the scene of death and filled it with life and therefore it is not death but glory that lies before the believer death is behind him and behind him forever as to the future it is all glory cloudless glory true it may be his lot to fall asleep to sleep in jesus but that is not death but life in earnest The mere matter of departing to be with Christ cannot alter the specific hope of the believer, which is to meet Christ in the air, to be with him and like him for ever. Of this we have a very beautiful exemplification in Enoch, who forms the only exception to the rule of chapter 5. The rule is, he died. The exception is, he should not see death. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Hebrews 11.5 Enoch was the seventh from Adam, and it is deeply interesting to find that death was not suffered to triumph over the seventh, but that, in his case, God interfered, and made him a trophy of his own glorious victory over all the power of death. The heart rejoices after reading six times the sad record he died to find that the seventh did not die and when we ask how was this the answer is by faith enoch lived in the faith of his translation and walked with god three hundred years this separated him practically from all around to walk with god must necessarily put one outside the sphere of this world's thoughts enoch realized this for in his day the spirit of the world was manifested, and then too, as now, it was opposed to all that was of God. The man of faith felt he had naught to do with the world, save to be a patient witness therein of the grace of God and of coming judgment. The sons of Cain might spend their energies in the vain attempt to improve a cursed world, but Edoch found a better world, and lived in the power of it. His faith was not given him to improve the world, but to walk with God. And oh, how much is involved in these three words, walked with God! What separation and self-denial, what holiness and moral purity, what grace and gentleness, what humility and tenderness, and yet what zeal and energy, what patience and long-suffering, and yet what faithfulness and uncompromising decision! to walk with god comprehends everything within the range of the divine life whether active or passive it involves the knowledge of god's character as he has revealed it it involves too the intelligence of the relationship in which we stand to him it is not a mere living by rules and regulations nor laying down plans of action nor in resolutions to go hither and thither to do this or that To walk with God is far more than any or all of these things. Moreover, it will sometimes carry us right athwart the thoughts of men, and even of our brethren, if they are not themselves walking with God. It may sometimes bring against us the charge of doing too much, at other times of doing too little. But the faith that enables one to walk with God enables him also to attach the proper value to the thoughts of man. Thus, we have in Abel and Enoch most valuable instruction as to the sacrifice on which faith rests and as to the prospect which hope now anticipates, while at the same time the walk with God takes in all the details of actual life which lie between those two points. The Lord will give grace and glory, and between the grace that has been and the glory that is to be revealed, there is the happy assurance that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly psalm 84 verse 11 it has been remarked that the cross and the coming of the lord form the termini of the church's existence and these termini are prefigured in the sacrifice of abel and the translation of enoch the church knows her entire justification through the death and resurrection of christ and she waits for the day when he shall come and receive her to himself she through the spirit waits for the hope of righteousness by faith galatians 5:5. she does not wait for righteousness inasmuch as she by grace has that already but she waits for the hope which properly belongs to the condition into which she has been introduced my reader should seek to be clear as to this some expositors of prophetic truth from not seeing the church's specific place portion and hope have made sad mistakes they have in effect cast so many dark clouds and thick mists around the bright and morning star which is the proper hope of the church that many saints at the present moment seem unable to rise above the hope of the god-fearing remnant of israel which is to see the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings malachi four nor is this all very many have been deprived of the moral power of the hope of christ's appearing by being taught to look for various events and circumstances previous to the moment of his manifestation to the church the restoration of the jews the development of nebuchadnezzar's image the revelation of the man of sin all these things it is maintained must take place ere christ comes that this is not true might be proved from numerous passages of new testament scripture were this the fitting place to adduce them the church like enoch will be taken away from the evil around and the evil to come enoch was not left to see the world's evil rise to a head and the judgment of god poured forth upon it he saw not the fountains of the great deep broken up nor the windows of heaven opened he was taken away before any of these things occurred and he stands before the eye of faith as a beautiful figure of those who shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one and 52. Translation, not death, was the hope of Enoch, and, as to the church's hope, it is thus briefly expressed by the Apostle to wait for the Son from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. This the simplest and most unlettered Christian can understand and enjoy. Its power, too, he can in some measure experience and manifest. He may not be able to study prophecy very deeply, but he can, blessed be God, taste the blessedness, the reality, the comfort, the power, the elevating and separating virtue of that celestial hope which properly belongs to him as a member of that heavenly body, the Church which hope is not merely to see the sun of righteousness, however blessed soever that may be in its place, but to see the brightened morning star, Revelation 2.28. And as in the natural world the morning star is seen by those who watch for it before the sun rises, so Christ as the morning star will be seen by the church before the remnant of Israel can behold the beams of the sun. End of chapter 5